we truly sell is a, is a change in mindset because people indeed have to get out of their usual way of, of doing business and start doing something new. And that greatly depends on trust. For sharing, you need trust. The key thing there, the, the starting point is the transparency. You know, you need the transparency to spark the creativity and the entrepreneurship. Hello and welcome to the Circular Economy podcast, where we find out how circular approaches are better for people, planet and profit. I'm Catherine Wheatman of Rethink Global, and I'll be chatting with those people making the circular economy happen, rethinking how we design, make and use everything. We'll talk to entrepreneurs and business owners, social enterprises and leading thinkers. You'll find the show notes, links and transcripts at circulareconomypodcast.com, where you can subscribe to updates and our fortnightly edition of Circular Insights. Welcome to episode 37 of the Circular Economy podcast. It's Friday the 25th of September as I'm recording this, and we're just back from a couple of days away in Scotland, walking in the woods with our dogs and visiting some old friends. In the UK, we're past the autumn equinox and autumn has most definitely arrived. Today, we're focusing on Flow2, a business that helps other organisations to share all sorts of resources. It helps intensify resource loops so we can get more use and productivity out of many different kinds of resources, everything from equipment to staff. We'll hear about how people are keen to collaborate and to find ways to save money and reduce waste and consumption. But what they need is visibility of available resources and to build trust between teams and organisations. And this is where Flow2 comes in. Let's find out how it all works. In today's episode, I'm talking to Lika van Kerkeven, co-founder of Flow2 Healthcare. Lika aims to drive the global change towards a circular economy by bringing the innovative concept of sharing to the healthcare sector. Back in 2012, Flow2 Healthcare became the first sharing marketplace for healthcare organisations, making it easy to share equipment, services, facilities, knowledge and skills within or between organisations. Lika has a professional background in healthcare. She studied medicine and over the following 10 years she held managerial and organisational positions in healthcare organisations in the Netherlands and abroad. She experienced firsthand how much organisations can benefit from sharing their assets, in the first place financially and also socially and environmentally. Lika, welcome to the Circular Economy podcast. Thank you, Catherine. So it's great to be talking to you today, and I'm really curious to know more about Flow2, how it started, and which sectors you focused on to begin with. Yes, so uh, like you already mentioned, we started out in 2012, and uh, the founders then, uh, one of the founders worked in the construction business, and he was actually selling heavy equipment to one company here and also another company a couple of kilometers away. And he knew that both of these companies would only use this piece of equipment for like half the time. So he figured uh, that that should be more efficient. And uh, he invented the sharing uh, economy for businesses. 
so they started the platform, but that was in the middle of the crisis back then. So especially in the construction business, there was a lot of uh, supply, but not so much demand because there was not so much construction going on. And um, I myself, I came from healthcare. And in my last position, we, I managed a clinic in, in Amsterdam and we actually shared a lot of our resources uh, like equipment, but also our operating theaters with other clinics in the neighborhood. Uh, or we would receive an endoscope, for example, from a hospital and we just had to replace the, the light instead of buying a whole new scope, which meant literally we would save 10,000 euros. So I thought that's actually a very healthy practice uh, but it all depended on informal networks. So it just depended on being in the right mailing list, being in the right network and uh, other members of our staff who would have connections that would be helpful. Um, so I thought, well, with the internet developing as it was back then, that should not be necessary. And we could actually formalize that practice, uh, you know, and prevent these huge group emails where, <laughs> where somebody would always say, reply to all, no, I don't need this, but perhaps you could reach out to Susan and she will be able to help you. So uh, I got in touch with Flow2 um, and we jointly uh, started Flow2 Healthcare as a brand uh, and started reaching out to the healthcare market and uh, well that's how from there we we developed further yeah that's interesting that that sharing was happening but how the internet and and kind of um platform technology has made so many more things possible um you know with this ability to organize information more specifically to reach the right the right people Exactly. So can you tell us a bit about how Flow2 works in practice, both from a lender's perspective and from a borrower's perspective? Yes. Yeah, so when we started, uh, we had the vision that uh, every organization would share publicly what they have to offer or what they have, uh, what they need, actually. So we had Flow2.com for every business organization and we had Flow2Healthcare.com for every healthcare organization. And then we actually discovered that there is a reluctance. Everybody said it's a good idea, but nobody was really doing it. So there is a reluctance to openly share whatever you need or whatever you have standing idle. Then we discovered that for private companies, the reluctance comes from a a, a competitive perspective. So they are afraid to share whatever they need or whatever they have standing idle from a competitive point of view, because they might give away information to competitors that they don't want to give away. And uh, public or semi-public organizations were afraid to share because uh, if they share what they have standing idle and then some newspaper comes along and just concludes that they have probably wasted money because they have all this idle capacity that they're not using and that was bought with public money. So uh, that was uh, a kind of a hurdle we had to take. And then we evolved to start um, making closed communities uh, for networks of organizations that were already in a trust relationship with each other or with a central partner. So that that partner would partner with us and then bring the practice of sharing to that network. Uh, Or organizations that are big enough to start sharing internally. And that's, for example, a hospital, but also multinational organizations with several locations spread across the country or even the world. Um, they would have a closed community where employees could actually make their supply or demand visual. Mm. And the organization would be able to optimize usage of what the, what they already have. Yeah. Yeah. And um, how do you get people within the organizations to change their procurement mm-hmm. habits away from the, you know, this, this, is, this is the way I've always done it. 
Um, yeah. Or even because um, I remember back to my um, DHL days, and we were trying to encourage um, transport managers to use the the kit that we already had that might be you know five miles down the road instead of hiring stuff in, and um, we had to try all sorts of things. But you know, one of the, it was about relationships, and they might have a trusted yeah. relationship with this supplier. Um, you know, who might take them to the football once a year and things like that. Yeah. So how, how do you encourage people to think differently and think about um, sharing instead? Yeah, I think we've come to our biggest challenge now already <laughs> in this discussion. Uh, because the mindset is, we are selling, of course, a, a technical solution, but our true, what we truly sell is a, is a change in mindset. Because people indeed have to get out of their usual way of of doing business and start doing something new. And that greatly depends on trust. Like you just said, there is for sharing, you need trust. Uh, so that is why we started creating this internal community. So then of course you, you really have this trust factor because it's just colleagues amongst each other. Um, and we really usually work with the communication department. So yes, we sell uh, the technical platform, but then actually the work, work starts because you have to introduce the practice uh, and usually the initial uh, enthusiasm is not the problem. So people will go there and then they will find something they need or they will actually advertise something, but then you have to keep it alive. And that's where the challenge uh, lies. So you have to, it's a continuous effort communication wise to keep people involved, to keep coming back to the platform. And in some organization, is, is they embedded it in the procurement process. So actually, if, if an employee uh, hands in a, a request for procurement of something, then the procurement department says, well, first you have to check this uh, internal sharing marketplace if, we, if a colleague has it somewhere. Uh, and if they don't, then actually we're going into the procurement procedure. But um, it depends a bit on the organization. Uh, it really, really helps if they make it fun. <laughs> So um, we have this sharing community for a big uh, care organization for disab disability care. So they have like uh, 800 locations spread across the, across the Netherlands. And the location can be just one home where five people live, or it can be a huge daycare center with a hairdresser and the supermarket, etc. So they, they started this because they wanted to enhance collaboration between all these various locations because they grew through various mergers. So they had all these regions that were just, you know, they joined the organization, but because their activity is so local, they didn't really connect to the central organization. Um, so they wanted to stimulate uh, collaboration cross-regionally. Uh, and they, f they figured if we have a sharing platform uh, and these homes, for example, are going to share furniture or uh, the people that live there, they need day jobs. So uh, one home may have a day job of folding laundry for a hospital, but they have too much laundry, so they can actually advertise that job. And then another home can, can help their clients have a day, uh, daily activity. So they are really using it to stimulate collaboration. And that is actually re really working very well because there is no pressure. There is no, we need to make money or we need to save or this is for efficiency. It's, it's just a thing for fun. And people, their employees are using it for that. So that's really successful. That's really great to see. Yeah. Mm. So when you, when you say they're using it for fun, are they, do they get kind of rewarded with a, you know, a point system or do they get, um, you know, sharer of the week or is it about making connections in 
in other uh, localities? No, actually it's not. We, we've, we've talked about that with several organizations. Perhaps you can have a sharer of the week or something like that. But then they say, no, we don't want it to be a competition. We want to move away from the competitive attitude. You know, it's about mm. collaboration and no one is best or whatever, you know. Uh, but we do mm. highlight uh, certain uh, exchanges, for example, in, in the newsletter. So it's not like a reward or you're better than the rest. But, you know, if something fun or something special changed hands in the organization, then, then it gets some attention. But it's not, no, it's not a competition. So do you mean kind of finding finding interesting stories yeah. about yeah. what's and been shared? To, and that can help spark ideas for, well, if, you know, if that exactly. works, then yeah, this would the work. Intention. Yeah, that's the intention. Yeah. To stimulate mm, enthusiasm yeah. and interest, so, yeah. Yeah. So the fun part of it really is kind of getting it into conversations and getting people to be creative about um, how they're approaching yeah. it and yeah. and that kind of thing. Yeah, and to kind of feel a sense of personal um, achievement and that personally you've yeah. made a, made a yeah. difference. Yeah, because the people on the work floor, they, they usually have a a big resistance to the waste that is going on. And they know very well what is standing idle or what they need. Um, and in the beginning, very often we speak to the managers and their job obviously is to have no idle capacity. So if we talk about that, then they say, no, we don't have that because if they would say I have that then they would have, have done a bad job. <laughs> uh, so we say always leave it to the creativity of the people. And, and really in every organization we see different things that we have never thought of before and then they use it for that and then we say oh yeah well that's also possible indeed <laughs> so that's really fun because people in their daily work habit they they have a very different perception of uh of what's going on or what they need or, or what might work than the managers and that's not bad that's just how it works because they yeah yeah that's that's just yeah. the way it is yeah when I started my career in industrial engineering um one of the lessons um you know in the training that I did was that if you want to find a better way to to do this particular process or a better way to lay out this factory floor or whatever um you know ask the people yeah, who exactly. are doing the job because they'll, <laughs> they know it better than anybody and they've and they've probably already thought through the um, annoying exactly. things that that um, you know stop them doing it in a yeah. in a more um, productive and and less frustrating yeah, exactly. way. Exactly, because they bump yeah. their knee every day to that stupid thing that is standing there, and nobody really knows why. <laughs> <laughs> so they know what what needs change. Yeah. Mm. And are you able to take? So you say um, you know there are the, these new examples popping up that really surprise you you know, in ways that people are being creative about what can be shared. Are you able to anonymize any of those, but share them with the other people in the network to kind of, um, uh, you know, help help spread the creativity or, or is it... No, I can. Is it very much down to each organization to kind of, um, you know, focus on their own, um, their own way of... of accelerating this no i can actually share two very nice examples one is from healthcare and one not from healthcare so that might you know be good for all the listeners mm, right so yeah. the first one is in a hospital and they had a, uh, a well a, a lady who worked in the department of physical therapy so that's obviously quite heavy uh, heavy work physically uh, and she had an injury so she had to recover and they didn't have any work on that department that was light enough for her to handle at that point point. 
So they actually put an advertisement out saying that this lady needed, uh, you know, was available for work. Um, and then the child care department, they reached out and they said, well, we have a lot of administrative work and our toys, our, our toys need cleaning. So she went there and she, you know, just had her stayed in the work rhythm. Uh, she was of value to the organization uh, until she was fit enough again to go back to her own job. So they, they gained two sides because this lady was not at home you know, being sick uh, and they avoided renting in uh, external uh, staff to do the administrative work that needed to be done anyway. Uh, so mm -hmm. that was something that we had never thought of before and they just used it to their own uh, well, best, uh, best interest. Uh, and another one is in the, the past prices. We also have platforms for business parks. Uh, so that's mm. the local community where a lot of organizations are very close to each other, but everybody just drives there every day to their own organization and, you know, do their thing and then drive home. So nobody really knows what the neighbors do or have. Uh, and a lot of um, uh, municipalities want to stimulate collaboration within these communities. So they facilitate a sharing platform for that particular business park. And then there is an overlapping a community for all the business parks because some capacity you want to share locally and some capacity the more expensive or rare forms of capacity you want to share more broadly with the rest of the country for example mm. so in the uh, crisis you actually saw that some businesses you know their business fell very low because there was no activity anymore and some businesses they saw a spike in activity because they were online or you know they had huge activities in their warehouse and uh, so what we saw on a business park close by here is that one of the companies, they actually, well, they had a lot of staff uh, sitting there. They had to pay them, uh, but, you know, they they didn't have any real activity, whereas there was a neighbor uh, and they needed a lot of hands in their warehouses. So they were actually able to exchange uh, staff uh, in this time of crisis. So it was a very special time. And, and that was actually very beautiful to see that in this, well, that this was facilitated by a sharing community. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah. And I'm sure there's there's um, so much untapped potential yes. um, in those kind of local things. I think on your website, it talked about, um, you know, sharing wastes um, across business parks. And that's something I've been trying to look at locally yeah. um, that, you know, we're, we're out in a rural area and businesses have to pay for their mixed waste to be taken away. They can't get anybody to, to even quote for doing a collection of, say, just plastic or just cardboard. Um, and it seems to be a monopoly that's, yeah. that's you know, it's one provider and, um, <laughs> and, and all they'll do is charge you to take away your mixed waste. But if businesses were able to get together and, and say, well, between us, we've got this much yeah. cardboard and this much plastic and we'll, you know, at one of our locations, we'll consolidate it and bail it up. Then it becomes more valuable yeah. um, to a recycler. Yeah, I, I totally agree. So those kind of things is just so much potential, isn't yeah. there? For... And, and the key thing there, the, the starting point is the transparency. That's what we always say, because sometimes people say, well, there is no we don't have any uh, reason to start a sharing community, but then we say, okay, but now it's not available. Everybody just does their own thing. You know, you need the transparency to spark the creativity and the entrepreneurship uh, of the others. You know, now there is no, not such 
such an amount of cardboard available that another entrepreneur might say, well, actually, now that this is available, I might do this or that with it and then, you know, see a new business opportunity. Uh, so the transparency is what's going to spark the next step. Mm, yeah, I think that's a, a really important point. Yeah, it's it's um, and can apply to, to so many other things, yeah. um, you know, that uh, when you start making things more transparent, um, people who might have a, a solution in their head suddenly exactly. can see where there's a problem yeah. Um, yeah. and connect it up. Yeah. yeah. So um, what over over the um, you know because the business has been going now um, you know we're we're getting close to a decade aren't we which is quite old in circular economy <laughs> yeah. terms so what have you struggled with um, and what what surprised you in the process of of building the business well the main struggle I already already mentioned it's the mindset you know when we started in 2012 mm. I, as you probably noticed as well uh, circular economy was really very much in the childhood not even in baby phase I think. So when we started in 2012, we really had to educate the market. Most people hadn't heard of it, let alone sharing economy. You know, some people had heard of Airbnb, but that was something for the front runners back then. So we spent, I think, like five years or something, five or six years just talking about the why. You know, we were like missionaries for this circular economy uh, practice. And now, since two or three years, we see a turn. Um, uh, circular economy obviously has found its way into business and organizational agendas. Um, it's usually embedded somewhere. Um, it's not yet a real decision driver, but um, you know it's it's gaining ground. And now we we get uh, questions about the how and the what. So okay, we get what you're doing, but how will that work for us, and what do we need to do for that? So that is something that is that's a big um, turning point that's really important for us. Uh, the current crisis. Um, bad as it was, it has always also made it very clear that collaboration is something that is really needed if you want a flexible and agile organization. Uh, and we've also seen that it is possible. You know, after the the, the big spike, in, you know, people went back to doing what they did, and also have some competitive sense again. But you know, there was a point in the crisis that everybody was really um, uh, collaborative, and uh, there was a lot of you know, help for organizations that were struggling. And uh, that was really beautiful to see. And we're trying to build on, on that uh, sense uh, to introduce uh, further rollout to practice. Yeah, that, mm. that's what surprises, yeah, and I, I guess. And I think, yeah. yeah, that can kind of um, play into um, this sort of, um, you know, helping people adopt a new mindset as well, yeah. uh, you know, encouraging and, and going back to the stories of collaboration that, that helped businesses out yeah. so much in the, in the pandemic, yeah. um, because I think it's been such a shock to everybody's system that those stories will resonate for yeah. quite a long period of time. Yeah. Um, and, um, and I think people see, see the benefits in multiple different ways. So, yeah. um, um, th there's less risk of, I think, of people just compartmentalizing that response to something that was very specific to that one problem. You know, they can kind of see the benefits translating into lots of aspects of the business. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. So, what what plans do you have for the next phase of of Flow Two? Well, um, obviously, we want to further expand. Um, um, like I said, we've already evolved into creating this closed communities uh, for sharing. 
Um, but we're kind of discovering now <laughs> that sharing is still something that is really nice to have. It is not everybody really gets it immediately what it is. So we still spend a lot of time um, uh, explaining. And also when we, when, you know, in an organization, you have to, you have a really big communication effort. So we're now kind of, uh, um, well, seeing if we can go towards a, a digital storage room. So every organization has this physical storage room usually where they have some desks or equipment or uh, I don't know, whatever they have. Uh, and, you know, that kind of uh, using that as a metaphor, we were saying, okay, so this is also the place where you're going to go, but there's no physical place and there's no guy who has to manage that. <laughs> it's just all your employees coming to the same place. It's online uh, and they are going to show you what they have uh, or what they may need. Um, so making it a storage room, uh, I think it's going, it's, it really resonates with people. Uh, and also because during the crisis, obviously you saw a huge mismatch to, between uh, supply and demand, uh, even within organizations. Uh, so it's become very clear that some central form of organization uh, of your, what you already have, your capacity is, is really necessary uh, in times of crisis, but also outside times of crisis, obviously. So that is where mm. we are going now. Yeah, that that um, reminds me of the conversation I had with uh, Tom Fekarotta at Reapley uh, a few podcasts ago. Yeah. And they um, help organisations exchange underused um, assets and um, consumables. And they, they started off in um, research universities and so on that were that were maybe um, buying chemicals and... and um, biological materials and things like that and would have you know leftover stock um and then kind of grew it from there and within organizations it was sort of easier because people might be talking the same language yeah. in terms of um the procurement catalog um you know what they called each different thing and the code numbers and so on but between organizations it's you know it, you could be talking in yeah. completely different languages and so what they've done is kind of set up um almost a translation dictionary um so one organization you know it gets mapped to us to a more standard terminology and then the other organization that's mapped as well and suddenly they're able to see see you know a single pool of of items instead of yeah. um you know you might you might call it um um i don't know a um uh I'm trying to think of a good. You you might call it a a coffee cup, and I might just call it a, a cup and saucer. Yeah. Um. You know, something that simple. Yeah. Um. And just how it gets catalogued in the first yeah. place for the first person who decides to buy that thing in the organisation, yeah. um, can mean the difference between it being visible and not yeah. not visible. No, it's true. So I really like the idea of this kind of um digital warehouse and, um, you know, um, having. <laughs> worked in supply chain for a long time um you know this idea of a of a warehouse management system that can look across several organizations uh and see what's where and 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 even you know send out the instruction to bring this from this location and um yeah. you know and get it get yeah. it to here um all without a lot of manual intervention yeah. so that that sounds really really yeah. interesting and um before um when we were talking earlier, um, before we started recording, you were talking about an example um, with pharmacies yeah. um, that was kind of breaking new ground as well. Yeah. 
Can you tell us a little bit more about yeah. that? So uh, I think um, a year and a half ago or something, uh, we started a pilot. Where we were approached by two pharmacists who said, well, there's a lot of discussion going on about waste of medication. You know, that's something that is really close to many people's hearts because they all have a grandma or someone who, you know, has a lot of medication and they have to throw it away. But they said there's also a lot of waste of medication within our pharmacies and nobody really talks about that. Uh, because if, you know, sometimes we order expensive medication and that's usually because there is a patient with a, a subscription for that. Uh, but this patient dies or they move or they change therapy and then that medication remains in our pharmacies because it can't go back to the wholesale organization. It just sits there. It's not something you give out every week. Uh, and then it reaches the expiration date and you just have to destroy it. So they said, um, what's going on right now is that a lot of pharmacists, they use WhatsApp, you know, to actually say, I have this package. Does anybody need this? And then another pharmacist will say, okay, I do. Uh, so they will, you know, exchange. Uh, the package will be sent through regular mail. Everybody just sits really tight because it's worth several thousands of euros. <laughs> Plus you, you can't monitor the, the, the conditions during the, you know, the mail phase mm. oh yeah temperature and so on exactly yeah. which is really important for some yeah. medications so they said that's really something that we would like to you know formalize again it's an informal practice uh, there's a lot of potential for saving money but especially resources because the production of medication is is the third most ecologically uh, harmful uh, procedure in healthcare so it's really you know worth making a, a change there so we created PharmaSwap uh, in the Netherlands. We, we conducted a pilot uh, below the radar because it's actually not allowed for pharmacists to trade medication between them. You can only sell medication if you have a wholesale permit to a pharmacist. Um, we, there were 20 pharmacists who joined in the pilot and in six months we were able to save nearly 60,000 euros with uh, wow. yeah, a couple of packages. So last fall, we won the most sustainable healthcare practitioner in the Netherlands award. And uh, this spring, uh, the Dutch Federation for Pharmacists awarded us the, the Innovation Award 2020. So that was all really promising. But then, of course, we got to the point where the health inspection would actually knock on our door and say, yes, this is all very nice, guys. But, you know, it's not it's not it's not legal. And, uh, you know, what are we going to do about this? Um, so we sat down with them and also with the Ministry of Health, but it's European legislation. So the Ministry of Health cannot really do something about that. It's the, the inspection that has to, has to you know, say something. And now last week they announced that they are going to give us a year, uh, a year in which they will allow the pharmacists to continue doing what they do. Uh, you know, we've saved over 200,000 euros already now. Um, so that's really something. And uh, in that year, we have to organize PharmaSwap in such a way that it get, it's within the rules. So that's going to be mm. a big challenge. It's going to be a lot of work, uh, but it's very encouraging that they are giving us the trust and the confidence to, to keep going because they really like how we have put it up. You know, we've made sure it's safe and according to all the rules, uh, we have a professional transportation company, so if a deal is made on a platform, then automatically a message goes to a professional organization that facilitates transport in a safe uh, manner. Uh, so they really like how we've done and thought about everything. And well, this is quite big, actually. And it's a really great example yeah. of circular practice, uh, I think. Yeah, yeah it sounds fantastic. Yeah. It's a real... Um, game changer, isn't it? It is, yeah. Um, and, and, and obviously could be translated worldwide. Yeah, yeah. 
especially in Europe because it's European rules. So if if the Dutch example mm. uh, works uh, and we organize it in such a way that it's, it becomes the gray area and it allows the health inspection to say, okay, now it's fine, it's safe, uh, then we can actually you know go into the rest of Europe because it's just the same rules. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And if even under a regulated system that's all all about um, patient safety and so on, if it works in Europe and can yeah. um, fit the legislations, then it would probably work for most other other countries. Yeah, I think so too. Um, yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. So um, let's come back because I'm uh, you know I'm I'm interested to find out um, because you you were involved in the circular economy. Um, in the really early stages, you know, as we, as you said, before it really got to the baby stage. So what first triggered your interest in circular economy? Yeah, it wasn't so much the circular economy as such. It was only later that I found out that that is what they called it. <laughs> because it was, well, like I said, in that, in that health clinic where we actually did, you know, share stuff that I thought this is very healthy financially in the first place. And then secondly, obviously, ecologically, um, and then only later that I found out about, about the circular economy concept that was actually, you know, put in words to the thing that we were doing. Mm. Yeah. Okay. And um, you've said that as you've been involved in the transition to a circular economy from the early beginnings, you have a strong sense of why it's starting to resonate with people and gain momentum now. Yeah. Um, and also how it influences our evolution as humans and the organizations we work in. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, yes. It's. It, um, I really believe that this is the most logical next step in, in our human evolution, obviously. You know, we've come from this, uh, there have been two industrial evolutions, then we've had revolutions uh, where we really um, uh, developed our, our or assets, so to say. So we automated a lot of things that usually that used to cost us a lot of time, but it has also taken away a lot of freedom because people had to start working in factories. You know, we became numbers. Uh, we controlled a lot of things. It was really top-down, controlled by um, the big capital, but also very strong governments. It was an essential part of our history but now i think we are progressing we've had the communication revolution now we are in the technical revolution and it's again freeing us up we don't need to be in a place from nine to five you know that's not necessary anymore uh every guy or girl with a great idea they can just go online and disrupt a, an entire business uh uh, sector in in just a couple of years, so to say, because they have a brilliant idea. You don't need big capital anymore to be to be a, pl a player of any uh, of, of any worth. So um, I think that this is really really changing uh, the our societies more than people are currently aware, um, and the freedom that it gives us uh, is allowing us to actually make the next step in our evolution, which is a spiritual. A development and i think a lot of the things that are going on right now in the world and uh well sustainability or, or circular economy is one thing but also there's a lot of uh well we have a lot of things with equality um uh, with inclusiveness uh, obviously there's a lot of negativity in the world um and i think they are all signs of the of where we hit the wall with our current way of thinking 
uh, we really still believe that there is a, is a divide and that my way is better than your way. You know, you see that everywhere in politics and all kinds of discussion in the media. And I think it's, the, for example, the circular economy, it's a rational framework because obviously we come from the rational era. So we've you know, expressed it in, in the, the way we know. So it's a rational framework for a spiritual development because if we are able to make this transition and and really actually remember that we are not in individuals as such but that we're all part of something bigger than 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 it's just mm. ourselves then it's only logical that we take better care of the ecosystem that we're part of which means um your family it means the people that you work with but it also means the nature that is around you and and the resources that you use the suppliers that you have your your clients your your everything how you construct your business um you know is is making money really the only goal is it or if you want a healthy business is there more to it you know why do people work for you mm. not because they want to make more money for you they want they want they need more than that so i think yeah that's that's where we are right now and it's it's a kind of a tipping point that's why that's so yeah i agree and i think we are starting to see a lot more about purpose driven business exactly and the younger generation particularly there are lots of surveys to say that they're looking for more meaning and exactly. more more um, kind of, um, you know, connection and the ability to really feel proud of yeah. the company that they're working for yeah. and the positive impact that they're having on the world. Yeah. And I think also we're starting to realise um, through uh, scientific advances just how interconnected everything yeah. is in nature and it's it's not as kind of, you know, unsophisticated as we thought it no. was and that, um, you know, there are so many knock-on effects if we impact on one thing i read a study this week about um the impact of microplastics on um you know ants and worms and insects in the in the soil yeah. um so we're, we're suddenly starting to realize that there are so many consequences to the way that we've been living yeah. for the last particularly the last 50 years yeah, yeah the, it's becoming so clear that everything is interconnected also the, the crisis has made that so clear you know it's not it's it's everywhere mm. and it impacts it may be it may be a disease, but it impacts the you know the, the furthest corners of of our societies uh, very mm. very much. It's I you know I studied medicine and when I studied medicine in the Western medicine we have compartmentalized our bodies. You know if you have something with your intestine you go to a gastroenterologist. If it's your not your lungs you go to a pulmonologist. And if they can't find it then they say I'm sorry but you have to go back to your GP or whatever you know find something yourself. We treat our body like a car, you know, if it's something with the engine or something with the wiring, you know, you fix it and then you go again. But that's yeah. not, it's becoming more and more clear that, that it's one big system and it's not just the, the physical parts. It's also everything around it, you know, it's what you eat, it's the people you hang out with, it's the the, mm. the things you, you allow to, to reach you, you know, like the news or the music you listen to or the nature if you are in a big, a big city where there is no nature or if you walk your dog every day in the in the woods it, it impacts your your state of being and your health and the more we discover that you know that's that's at the small scale but at, at the large scale it's exactly the same yeah and i think again the lockdown has um helped a lot of people yeah. understand that for themselves yeah. um you know because there was so much going on and people have found peace and space yeah. um in nature even if that was only able to be their local park yeah. um so i think people have, are starting to realize just how yeah. 
um, how it can help our mental well-being as well as yeah. um, you know getting physical exercise yeah. and exertion and so on. Yeah. So yeah, well let's let's hope the momentum continues on on that front indeed, as well. Indeed, indeed. So, um, Lika, is there anyone you'd recommend as a future guest for the programme to inspire people about the circular economy? Yes, Marielle van Hemert. She's also Dutch um, and she co-founded together with another lady, The Circular Stories. And they are actually travelling across the world, um, collecting the stories and visualising them. And um, it's a really nice effort what they're doing. Uh, because they're really, you know, the storytelling is obviously very necessary for the behavioral change that we need. And um, mm. they're really in- energetic and inspiring ladies. So it might be nice to, to have them. Yeah. Great. That sounds good. And I've got a funny feeling because oh. somebody from a Circular Stories organization connected with me this week on LinkedIn. So um, there's a high, high chance it's the same organization. <laughs> exactly. So, um, yeah, I'll look that up. And Lika, if people want to find out more about you and about Flow2, um, how can they get in touch? Yeah, well, uh, through our websites, flow2.com and flow2healthcare.com. Uh, or... And that's Flow2 with, with double O, so yeah. F-L-O-O-W-2. Two. Yeah, exactly. Thanks for that. Yeah. Uh, or connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, you know, I'm easy to find. So, uh, yeah. Brilliant. So, Lika, uh, we'll put all those those links as well as the transcript in the show notes at circuleconomypodcast.com. Yeah. And um, we wish you the best of luck with the next phase of Flow2 and uh, particularly Flow2 Healthcare. And um, fingers crossed for the uh, regulation box ticking <laughs> on the uh, on the pharmacy yeah. example. And thanks for sharing all those stories with us today. Thank you, Lika. Catherine, good luck with your podcast. Thank you. Researching Flow2 on their website, I can see a wide range of sectors and resources are already being shared. Everything from excavators to forklift trucks and company cars, from conference rooms to office space, from MRI scanners to human resources. You can share with people in the same business park, across the construction sector, across departments in a hospital, across the agri-food sector in Canada, anything and everywhere. It was great to find out that people really want to do this, want to make a difference and stop wasting resources and money. It's not being driven by managers with budgets. As Lika said, people enjoy collaborating and the pandemic has encouraged collaborative thinking, helping change mindsets for the long term. Mindset change, as we've said before, is a critical lever in helping circular approaches gain momentum and buy-in. Platforms like Flow2 can provide the transparency of what's available, where and when. And Flow2 can also provide confidentiality to make sure you can exchange resources without worrying that you're giving information away to your competitors or that the press will find out you haven't used all those resources that you bought. If you'd like to learn more about the circular economy, why not go back and listen to episode one? Head over to rethinkglobal.info or buy my award-winning book, A Circular Economy Handbook for Business and Supply Chains, which takes you through the concepts and practicalities, including lots of real examples from around the world. You can find the podcast show notes with transcripts and links on rethinkglobal.info. Please let us know what you'd like us to feature on the podcast. 
and you can help other people find it by reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. You can get in touch via our website, rethinkglobal.info, or connect with me on LinkedIn. See you next time.